Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Daniel Oppenheimer is the author of Exit Right and has written for The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Slate, Washington Monthly, Texas Monthly, Guernica, and The New Republic, among other publications, and is most recently the author of Far From Respectable, Dave Hickey and His Art, which is what we'll be talking about today. So thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. So I'd like to start just kind of with an intro um, of the subject of the book, Dave Hickey, and perhaps if you could just kind of give your brief spiel about... Um, who he is and why he matters today. In other words, what sort of motivated you to write the book in this particular moment? And perhaps more broadly, because I think he's associated with an argument for the continued value of, of beauty and discussions of art and culture. Yeah. Um, related to that, why that conversation is still important. Yeah. Um, so I, the, I'll, I'll sort of start with the maybe the simplest version of who he is and then, and then maybe try and elaborate on that. I mean, the simplest version, and, and Hickey is still alive, he's about 82, he's not writing much anymore, but simplest version is that he's an art critic or maybe more accurately, he's an art writer and cultural critic and essayist, who I would say is can arguably the most important, um, not necessarily art theorist, but art writer of the last 50 or 60 years. I mean, I think you have to go back to somebody like Clement Greenberg or something like that, to imagine somebody who's had as much of an influence, not just within the art world, but kind of in adjacent territories as Hickey. He won the MacArthur Genius Award in, in I think 2001 or 2003 or something like that. He had two big books in the 90s. You know, you were talking about beauty and, you know, and, and arguments for beauty. He had two book, big books in the 90s, um, The Invisible Dragon, four essays, on beauty was 93, I think, and then Air Guitar, Essays on Art and Democracy was 97. And those are, he has other books. Those are his two big books. Um, they were huge in the art world, and then they sort of, to some extent, migrated outside the art world, and I'm not coming from inside the art world, so I'm, I'm an example of that. Um, but they were really transformative. And in, in Invisible Dragon in 93 in particular, it was an argument for the continued relevance, salience, importance of beauty to understanding and, and evaluating and um, valuing art, which is a strange thing to say to people who come from outside the art world, because of course it would seem totally obvious, but, but at that point in the art world, and, and I'd say to some extent still, it was actually other things that were valued. Beauty was rarely amongst sort of high level theoreticians and critics, something that people talked about in a kind of unironic way, you know, to talk about sophistication, complexity, truth, justice, power, other sorts of things, other sorts of concerns. And Hickey made a very compelling and sort of theoretically rich, if not always theoretically tight argument for why beauty always had been and would continue to be super important. I think the other thing, you know, talking about the relevance for today is it was also an argument against, I'm not even sure he uses words, but it was an argument against political correctness in the art world in the 90s and in the context of the culture wars in the 1990s. And so everything that was like super relevant back then 
is, is, you know, if anything more so now when those sort of a lot of arguments that were just happening in niche sort of cultural ecosystems in the 90s have become just sort of pervasive across, you know, the sweep of all the big liberal institutions um, in America. So, so everything he said that was critical back then of ways in which the, the art world was, you know, back then we said politically correct is sort of doubly relevant now, I would argue. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to get into that as well. So you um, early on in the book discuss his intervention in the controversy about Robert Mapplethorpe and his photographs of sort of BDSM. Um, and also uh, these other um, controversies in the art world at the time, like uh, Andres Serrano's Piss Christ. Yeah. And, you know, this kind of harks back to this moment when, you know, on one hand, you still had, of course, or you had a political correctness debate that was comparable to what it is today. But at the same yeah. time, you also had this kind of very aggressive, I mean, which I think you can still say does exist today, but um, this very aggressive right wing cancel culture, we might call it right, which yeah. was aggressively attempting to shut down exhibits, cut off funding and things like that for art that was regarded as offensive, right? Yep. So, so there was, I, I would say the cultural right was, was stronger institutionally and, and also had at least somewhat more efficacy um, in, in getting institutions to, you know, um, sort of kowtow to its, um, to its sensibility, sensitivities. So, yeah. you know, so it's interesting that at that time you had these two versions of um of this kind of cult we might call cultural puritanism right coming from both sides of the spectrum and they seem yeah. almost equally although perhaps in somewhat different ways um uh, menacing to art yeah and um so that you know that's a really interesting part of this discussion because uh, that you have in the book because it it brings us back to a time that's like ours but also not no, that's a good, that's a good point. And I, and I have like one sentence about this in the book, but actually when I'm talking, trying to describe those cultural wars of the nineties, but I actually haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, which was, I think it was, this is part of what you're, you're talking about. Like, I think it was kind of the last gasp of the cultural right in a way, in, in the sense that they still hoped they could win. Like, like they still, you know, the cultural institutions, the liberal culture, cultural institutions were, you know, profoundly liberal and had been for a long time, but the, the cultural right, the idea that we could continue to live in this sort of, you know, 1950s, basically, you know, heterosexual, you know, somewhat churchy, not, not like super right-wing churchy, but just kind of like mainline Christianity, churchy where we would respect things like, it still held on and there was still hope, I think that they could prevail. And you're right, that's like totally different now, right? Like they wield, power in different ways but the idea that america is like going to look anything like that i think is like over and i and so you're right it was that it was more of a contest between those two things and i think another thing i'm sort of thinking about now and you brought it up like one of the things that made hickey interesting is i think he lacked a lot of the anxieties of like both like that, that were dictating where people were coming from so the art world in response to these efforts from the right to cancel exhibitions, you know, cancel funding, you know, NEA funding because it, it sort of indirectly funded Andre Serrano's His Christ, Robert Maplethorpe's exhibition, things like that. 
you know, the art world was acted like it was terrifying, right? Like it was terrifying that it was going to be crushed under the heel, the you know, fascist heel of the cultural right. And and Hickey's like, what are you fucking talking about? Like, look at how much power we have. Like, who, like, like this is ridiculous. Like, you're acting like we're sort of these, you know, helpless, you know, virgins, you know, being sort of marauded by the barbarians or something like that. And he's like, we own all of these institutions. So he lacked, utterly lacked that anxiety. Um, and also, but, but he wasn't a right winger. And, and he also, you know, lacked the anxiety of the right wingers that, that America was going to become this more hedonistic, you know, less heterosexual, less white thing. Because he, he didn't, he thought that was great. It should become all of those things. And Maplethorpe with his, you know, extraordinary images of, of you know, BDSM and, and gay sex and naked men and um, was sort of, these sort of decadent, wonderfully decadent images to him were like, well, this is the best of it. So he lacked those, he lacked the anxieties of both, both sides. And yeah, it is very different in that sense. Like the, the, any hopes, I think the, that the, the, the right had that, that they could restore that order is are long gone. That's why you have figures like, you know, Rod Dreyer or something like that, talking about, you know, that the, the goal now for, you know, the cultural right for the religious right is just to retreat into their, you know, create their little worlds and retreat into them and, 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 and nurture the flame for some time after, you know, after these dark ages that we're in. Right. I mean, when you see, and also it seems like when you see some kind of resurgence of that, um, that, that kind of right-wing cancel culture, I mean, there was that, for some reason, the one that comes to mind is there was the French movie on Netflix about the like girls who were, learning um, how to twerk or whatever the like yeah right. we're learning how to twerk and it was like there was a huge you know sort of upsurge of disgust about that for like a couple days but then it didn't you know netflix didn't do anything about it it, <laughs> it just it didn't really it, it was and it, it was interesting as well because it wasn't you know back then it was actually dead it was directed at these you know the major museums and um you know this kind of realm of high art where they they seem to have greater um, concerns about that. Whereas I don't really see the right really caring or, or thinking that they can win on that terrain anymore at all. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I barely even know the details of that controversy because I couldn't generate any internal interest yeah. in it. Maybe yeah. for the reason you're saying, which is like, it's such a sideshow, you know, with the interesting stories or the, the power that the cultural left is exerting over right. this kind of thing, right? Where were they, you know, where, Netflix pays attention. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I was so you sort of were pointing in this direction, but one of the one of the key points you discuss in his in terms of Hickey's intervention in the the Mapplethorpe controversy is that he he defended Mapplethorpe vigorously and was a great you know, appreciator of his work, but at the same time, he was critical of most of the other defenders of, of Mapplethorpe. Yeah. So I, I was curious if you could walk us through that. And also I'm wondering if there's sort of a parallel critique that could be made of the sort of anti-cult, anti, the standard anti-cancel culture mm -hmm. um, arguments of today. In other words, yeah. is, there, is there anything in that, in that critique of the other defenders of artistic freedom or whatever that still, you know, resonates in terms of what the limitations of the, the sort of standard um, arguments of that sort we hear today are. That's really interesting. All right, you're gonna have to help me with that because I haven't thought about that. 
but I'll, I'll sort of do the maple for sort of thing and then maybe we can sort of think through that because that's really interesting. I mean, so Mapplethorpe had taken all these photos and I mean, the controversy was there was, they were going to stage an exhibition of it at the courtroom in, in DC. And then there was the, the, the Andre Serrano, his Christ stuff exploded a little bit before that in the courtroom at a fear that they would get the same kind of blowback from, from the right and from, you know, hearings in Congress or something. They canceled their exhibition, Mapplethorpe, and then that was a big controversy. And then the Cincinnati, Cincinnati Museum of Art sort of staged an exhibition and then um, was, was sort of preemptively indicted, um, I think on the first day or something like that, the, the, you know, the sheriff or the, the prosecutor um, indicted them for, for violating obscenity laws. And then there was a big trial and it was fascinating trial, you know, about sort of First Amendment, kind of important trial about First Amendment rights and you know, freedom of expression. And, and a jury um, in Cincinnati exonerated the museum and a curator of all charges of obscenity in, in sort of standard ways. Um, and Hickey, yeah, I mean, his critique much more of the, his feeling was, so the right-wing attacks were like obvious and expected and kind of amusing. You know, they're so scared of the gay sex. He wasn't that interested in that. He's like, He's like, yes, Mapplethorpe is proposing like profound revision of like what our world should be. That's that that is in fact threatening to the values that conservative Americans and lots of just middle of the road Americans at that time, you know, 89, 90, 91, oh dear. Like it will trend. His feeling was they correctly perceived the threat of this kind of art to their to their worldview and their their existence. And I think the last um, 30 years has borne that out in, in what are mostly kind of great ways from my perspective, but they weren't wrong to be afraid that, that these art celebrating, you know, what would have been conceived of as deviant sex was, um, was a threat to them. And then the defenders of Mapplethorpe and Les, at least in Hickey's perspective on it, and he, he, you know, shows what he wanted to highlight. They defended him in sort of the, what Hickey perceived of as these arid terms. They tried to sort of take the deviants out of what he was doing and saying that, you know, it was about, sort of, you know, formal, uh, you know, some kind of formalism or, or the beauty of the shapes and, and, and the light and, and sort of make it more acceptable and amenable to the jury and to the world from this, because I, his perspective was they were afraid of the, of, he wouldn't have called it deviance, they were afraid of just the sort of destabilizing quality of art that celebrates marginality or celebrates anything in a way in a truly powerful way that art is just this force that destabilizes certainties and changes the world around it in unpredictable ways. And that that was threatening to the kind of liberal art establishment as well. And they kind of ran away. And so a lot of the critique was of them was saying like, you know, you guys are afraid of art too. And he told this kind of fascinating story and you know, I won't testify to the truth of it, but it was a great story that basically there had been an explosion and kind of, you know, um, early 20th through the sort of mid 20th century of all this extraordinary art that had changed the world around it, you know, from like the you know, early modernists up through people like Warhol or something like that, that had totally transformed the world and made it modern in all sorts of ways. And that it had been a threat to the uh, cultural commissars of the, you know, I mean, I would call the left of the institutions as well. It was too unpredictable. It was too sexy. It was too beautiful. It, it, it induced, created too much pleasure in the viewers, which led to 
unpredictable outcomes and that the institutions always want to mediate. Um, they, they want to do the mediation and the interpretation for people. They don't trust people, the masses to sort of do what, what, what they will with powerful art and feelings and pleasure. And so Maplethorpe was an example of this. So that in Hickey's telling, the right wing and the left wing were sort of in a sort of secret, implicit conspiracy, not actually a conspiracy, but a sort of unconscious conspiracy to sort of contain and control what he was doing. And, and, and Hickey's sort of efforts as a writer were to sort of, you know, restore to sight that, that what, it, what it was doing sort of didn't play by any kind of standard political or institutional rules. Um, and I mean, you know, and this is a simplistic way of putting it, but in some ways, he's like a sex, drugs, and rock and roll '60s liberal, and 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 is and is uninterested in and 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 then often often feels threatened by the kind of um, puritanical academic figures of the of the of the art world or the kind of liberal bureaucracies. Does that make sense? <laughs> Sometimes when I'm talking about this stuff for more than like 30 seconds, I worry it doesn't. No, 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 that was good. Um, I mean, in terms of today, I guess this is a bit a bit vague, but you know, one thing I often think is that anybody who falls into this posture of just appealing to a kind of abstract freedom of expression or something like that, I mean, often what they tend to do along with that is to kind of um, attempt to neutralize the thing that they're defending and say oh, you know, it's, it's not harmful or it doesn't, it doesn't really have any effect. Right. And maybe right. that's kind of the, I mean, it's, it's as if in order to defend the freedom, there's also an attempt to say, well, actually this thing is just, it's just words or it's just images or it's just whatever. And so it, it sort of, um, it, it tends to that, that posture often tends to go along with this kind of neutralizing, um, characterization where you say, where you actually minimize the significance of the thing you're trying to defend. Right. Um, so I wonder if that's maybe a, a, a sort of through line to some of the debates we hear about today. I think that's interesting. I'm trying to sort of, I'm trying to look, make it sort of more concrete in my mind and like think about specific kind of people in the, in the anti-cancel culture. It's probably the anti-cancel culture left or something more than, more than the, the right. I'm not sure who the interesting figures are on the right because most of them seem pretty cynical. But right, um, right. you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of who it would be. I can say viscerally, as, as you know, and I think of myself in some broad sense as on the anti-cancel culture, anti-woke left. Like I'm trying to think of who the figures are who I, I find distasteful and whether they mm-hmm. <laughs> whether they they fall into that category. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess what I, you know, the, the example that's coming to mind, which is maybe not that useful, but because it's not art, <laughs> but um, is, you know, this whole critical race theory debate that we're seeing now, yeah. right, which, which interestingly has put many people on the left kind of back who might not ordinarily adopt these kind of arguments back in this position of, of arguing for you know, First Amendment rights and so on. And, you know, to the, the extent to which that's misplaced in this discussion is, is sort of up for debate, especially when it comes to K to 12. But um, it, you know, it does strike me that it's, it's curious to see that this is the place where that appeal to the kind of neutrality of institutions comes into play, precisely because the whole thrust of 
at least the most interesting critical race theory is against the neutrality of institutions. Right, right. So in other words, right. if you take those ideas seriously, then the argument that's being used to defend their legitimacy in these contexts is um, is one that should itself be treated with great skepticism. And so what I what I find interesting is, you know, I mean, I'm I, I think whatever, you know, in terms of the actual and you know, part of the problem with this debate is the term has been become a catch, you know, CO2 yeah, right. has become a catch-all. But you know, to me, what's interesting and provocative about the ideas, at least in their original form before it became a catch-all is, is the way that they, um, that they are um, targeting the supposed neutrality of liberal institutions. So it's, it's interesting to see a kind of argument that assumes that deployed to defend their presence in those institutions. So, I, I mean, that's, yeah. I don't know if that's a, but it does have a little bit of that same kind of defanging Yep. Um, yeah, and, it's, and I don't know how much of that is cynicism or something, yeah. right? Because you do see a lot of people have now in that kind of CRT, anti-CRT debate. It's like, well, what, you don't think we should teach about slavery, you know, you know the, the impact right. of slavery, you know, in, in ways that you're saying, like, they're trying to sort of make it seem much more moderate than in fact it is. And I don't know how much of it is cynical and how much of it is just, you know, either that, look, there's a lot of people, there are a lot of people, I mean, this was true in the, the 1930s when, you know, people sort of not understanding how truly zealous the communists were, right? They, they just thought they were like really enthusiastic liberals and they didn't actually understand that they wanted to sort of bring down the entire structure, right? So when they were asked to defend them, you know, in the 30s, I mean, what they would defend them as, as kind of just really hardworking, enthusiastic liberals or something. Mm-hmm. And they believed right. it, right? Right. And, and, and so there's some of that, right? There's a lot of people who just in their mind, and I think this is true, like this is just probably pervasive. And I mean, I've, I've worked in the university in a university context for the last 15 years. And that is absolutely true. I mean, I would sit in like seminars. We had this great kind of internal continuing ed thing where we'd have lecturers, usually faculty at the university come in and lecture on different topics of like diversity and equity. So we're bringing in, and you know, we're bringing in these people who are actually pretty radical, right? And I'm sitting around surrounded by a bunch of diversity bureaucrats who are in, functionally in no way radical, right? Like utterly, utterly committed to the perpetuation of this big liberal institution, right? Zero interest in turning it down, you know? Yeah. And they're sitting there listening to these people who are genuinely radicals and just kind of nodding along and, and, and assimilating. And I, I'm pretty sure in their head, it was just this kind of translation into they just what they saw were people like them. And I was like, no, these are people, these are not people like you. Like these are people who want to, including some friends of mine, like these are people who want to tear it all down. Right. And so there's some of that. There must be some cynicism, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, yeah when Ibram Kendi or something is, is, is downplaying the radicalism of this stuff, like, mm-hmm. can he really not know? But yeah, I'm trying, yeah. I don't know. Um, well, I think but the, it is interesting. Yeah. But I'm not yeah. sure, but that's a different set of people than right. what I was thinking about, which is like just the real old school liberals, the kind of, you know, intellectual dark web, Sam Harris. Yeah, totally. Yeah. types and, and, and do they do some version of what Hickey was critiquing you know where they're sort of defanging the, the you know the, the the significance of this stuff I don't know that's a good question it, I, mean, I will I think say part of what part of what go ahead go ahead no I was just going to say I will say I find it endlessly frustrating that, that that so many people kind of fall back into these sort of rhetorically convenient 
strategies for defending their position. And, and what, among other things, what it does is it just leads to much less interesting conversations because people aren't actually talking about what's at stake, right? And so it's sort yeah. of like, it's infuriating. Like, I want to hear conversations about what's at stake. Instead, you get conversations that seem like they're two or three degrees removed from that because most people's tendency when faced with sort of some like rhetorical attack is to just default to whatever seems like the most tactically um, convenient, effective, you know, approach. And, and I just, it's just a boring, it just gets so boring. After a while. Yeah, no, a hundred percent agreed. And, and I think, yeah, that this maybe does get at what the, you know, that perhaps part of his critique of the other defenders of Mapplethorpe and other controversial artists of the period was that they were defaulting into these tactical yeah. maneuvers that, that didn't really get at the substance of the thing being debated. Um, and, and he could be soft. I mean, he could be too blase about like the people mm -hmm. who were, you know, Jesse Helms, who was one of the critics of, yeah. of Maplethorpe and things like that, you know. So there's a, there's a certain kind of glibness about this, but he's right when he says, you know, the Senator from North Carolina understood what was at stake, which was this right. shit was actually dangerous, right? Dangerous yeah. and destabilizing to certain, you know, widely held values. And the people who were defending it didn't want to admit that because they wanted it to kind of slip in under the wire. Like you're saying, it's just this neutral stuff. It's just free expression. It's just artistic, you know, because they didn't want to say like, they didn't want to own it and say, yeah, you're right. Like what we're proposing is a radically different view of human sexuality and, and morality that will totally yeah. upend your life over the next 30 years. Um, that was a harder sell. Yeah. And I think this does actually get at what, you know, this debate has in common with the, the current CRT one, for example. I mean, it, you know, and, and as you said, you know, it's, it is a, it's a demoralizing debate to observe um, because it's so full of these cynical tactical maneuvers that, that no, that nobody is actually convinced by anyway, who isn't already yep. convinced. So it's, right. it's, it's extremely unproductive and, um, yeah. So, but then the other thing that strikes me about this, that, that makes me a little bit sad in a way is, <laughs> you know, how, um, what, what I'm realizing is, is maybe difficult about making this connection is how remote, you know, if, if one of Hickey's main contributions was to kind of reinvigorate, uh, um, attention to beauty, yeah. um, and to, you know, aesthetics as a, as a meaningfully distinct, but, overlapping domain of interest, then, you know, it, it strikes me how far these debates are from that, right? That, that there's really, there's very yeah. little room for um, aesthetics as a, as a consideration. And um, that, you know, that's, you know, that, that at least um, perhaps part of the, you know, part of the interest of these earlier debates is that the opponents of these, um, of these uh, artists saw that they saw that they were doing something aesthetically powerful and dangerous. Yeah. And I'm not sure that there's much that is similar to that today. Except I I I kind of I was going to bring this up later. Except I would say <laughs> I, I would argue that um, the response to Trump on the part of his opponents was in part a recognition that there was something aesthetically powerful in what he was doing. But I kind of wanted to, I was going to leave that for later, but that's yeah. maybe a no, provocation. Um, that's an interesting way to think about it. I remember yeah. early in the primaries, 
I mean, I don't know if you had the same experience, but a lot of us did. I wouldn't be surprised if we did. Like, it was good TV, right? I mean, watching, I mean, I would watch debates and I was, I took, took such pleasure in watching him, you know, I mean, this stuff he would pull off, like low energy, you know, I mean, what an aesthetic maneuver, right? He called Jeb Bush low energy. And it was like with those two words, he just ended the guy's candidacy and political fortunes forever, right? I mean, do you remember back then, like how much yeah, fun oh, yeah. it was? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I can overstate that, right? Like some of the debates, he was like boring through most of it. And he dropped, mm, but like, mm, sure. it was like, it was great entertainment. Um, and he is, and I, you know, I'd see like, and, and I got to a point with him where I just couldn't even bear. I mean, once he was in power, I could, I could barely bear sort of hearing him. But it could be funny. And yes, I mean, I, I think you, I think you're right. And I think like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's some broader point, right. About kind of what just psychological defense mechanisms when something that sort of threatens us has a, has attraction and, and in charisma and the, and the ways that we sort of pretzel up our brain to avoid acknowledging that um, is, is, is incredibly powerful, right. In, in, in sort of our reactions, um, and I try to, and I think, you know, this is probably to some extent the influence of Hickey on me. Like I, I really try to sort of kind of do that and, and maybe a lot of years of therapy too. Like I try and do that thing where there's something that I don't like, but it's powerful. I sort of like sit with it. It's something I don't like in certain sense, but it exerts attraction on me or a force on me. I try and like sit with it and like own it, um, which is, I think is very hard for people to do. Um, I think it's much easier in a lot of cases to just, if you, if there's some implications of it that you don't like, or you're uncomfortable with, is to just sort of deny the aesthetic force or attribute it to um, just some badness. I don't know. I was watching last night, um, old school, you know, old school, Will Ferrell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's like i mean i'm sure we've all had this experience right and it, that movie wasn't even made that long ago and you're like there's like 18 million things in that movie that like would never be made yeah now and it's like one of the forces like one of the aesthetic or sort of forces on my life has been some form of like broish white male comedy i mean it doesn't have to be white and it doesn't have to be you know male or heterosexual but i just you know movies like um animal house or you know, Revenge of the Nerds in a weird way or old school or dodgeball or just like that whole sort of sphere of like male kind of broish, broish isn't even fair, but like masculine comedy has been a big like aesthetic force in my life. And it's like, it's complicated to know what to do with that now. It's easier to just kind of like, that was just the bad days when people were sexist or something like that or, or or homophobic or something like that. But that would, just, that would just be a denial of like, it would be a denial of like the reality. And it would also be just from a sort of philosophical or theoretical point of view, like denial of the whole really interesting sphere of inquiry about like, well, what is happening there? Is there something worth preserving? Um, and what do we lose when we just totally rid ourselves of that um, in the interests of justice or something like that and, and equality? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose going back to Trump a little bit in relation to that, um, you know, I've heard many suggestions over the past several years that perhaps just, you know, primarily in my sort of weird corners of the Internet, um, which aren't exactly, you know, which aren't which aren't 
sort of Trumpy per se, but sort of are are often kind of interested in in what he what he meant mm-hmm. aesthetically. Um, and you know, which I oh, think before is you go of, on, how would you yeah. characterize that whatever that corner of the internet is that you're in? Because I'm curious. I'm kept, like I'm not actually well, not sure about how to think about you. I would say sense. different corners, but um, y- you know, it's I, I'd say it's kind of people who. Um, have historically had some some affiliation with the left, but are disaffected with it for various reasons, and I think we're particularly put off by the the sort of fervent puritanism of sort yeah. of liberal culture in the liberal to left culture in the Trump era, and you know, and and I'd say, you know, part of my own sort of evolution over the past few years was, was in reaction to that. And, you know, that's why I think there's a lot in this book that is relevant today. Right. Because yep. I, I think what Hickey was reacting to was sort of a, a, an earlier set of iterations of that, yep. you know, that, that basically you have this, this institutional um, presence in American culture, which is still infused with this kind of waspy, prim puritanism, which manifests yep. itself in various ways. Yeah, totally. And, um, you know, I'd say part of the reaction to, I mean, so part of the reaction to Trump was fundamentally aesthetic, right? Yep. And, uh, and, you know, both, uh, both in the negative and the positive reaction, right? And, you know, this is kind of a, I remember back in the 90s, you know, when I was young, people saying like, Oh, you know, it's interesting that all these right wing, um, these sort of Christian conservatives are so obsessed with, you know, things like Mapplethorpe or, you know, with like representations of gay sex, like it's obviously sort of prurient and they're like obsessed and titillated by it. Right. Right. Well, we could sort of transfer that to thinking about, okay, so why did Trump get so much airtime on CNN and MSNBC and so on? Well, because there was similarly this kind of, there was this level of aesthetic titillation Yep. That that need that was um, needed to be sustained, but also needed to be denied throughout throughout that time, and so that there was this kind of weird relationship to it, right? And yeah. so I'd say, you know, my own reaction was um, I was very put off by, you know, and and what I saw many times is this kind of revival of these attitudes and postures that I when I was younger associated with these kind of horrible Republican pure, you know, and sort of conservative yep. Um, yep. puritanical types yep. that, that seemed, you know, in the past four or five years, um, very much um, typical of the, the liberal establishment as well as I'm much curious, left. Is- so, so I'd say a lot of, you know, this corner is kind of, is, is comments is, you know, responding to and commenting on that evolution. Um, I, I think just people who are, you know, that, that there is a kind of conglomeration of people who are who are disaffected with the dominant sort of yep. liberal monoculture as it's as it's evolved over the past um, decade or so, but who are also, you know, not particularly interested in whatever the right is offering um, is, you know, it's at least an interesting sphere to exchange ideas with but um, the other thing i was going to say just to bring it back to hickey a little bit because it, i mean it's not yeah. this is not forced at all you talked about you know you and blake and whoever else kind of reading some of these some of these figures postmodern figures and whomever kind of against the brain like blake did blake do something on how you know leo strauss is a potential resource for the revitalization of liberal i mean who knows if that's true in some sense but it's like 
Um, Hickey, like, that's part of the power of his writing, you know, and he's a beautiful writer, and that's part of the power of his writing, just the kind of aesthetic force of it. But also he uses figures like Foucault and Deleuze and, and others who are sort of less sort of canonical, but 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 he just kind of uses them in interesting ways, in, in sort of pr- productive, intellectually productive ways. You know, I, I remember, like, you know, I've talked to former students of his at, at UNLV, you know, and one of the things he said to me, but they, they, they've said to me too, is like, He's not anti-theory. He can sometimes get be caricatured as kind of anti, anti-theory. He's not anti-theory at all, but just the way that he, the, what he did with it was just very different. He didn't hand it to his students and say, this is the paradigm within which you should work. He said, these are powerful thinkers. They have been useful to me in various ways. They may be useful to you as well. They may not, some of them will, some of them won't. And the ways, the ones that are, the ways that they'll be useful to, to you will not be the ways they are useful to me. So it was, a, it was much less of a kind of like, these are the frames within which you should think as, as these are tools to use. And like, I mean, so it's like, it, it's, it's not forced. That's exactly what you guys are, what you guys are doing. That's what you're talking about. Like these are powerful thinkers who can be used to think about our current moment in really interesting and productive ways, but you have to get outside of like these sort of reductionistic versions of, I said, but from both sides, from the people who just treat them like boogeymen and from the people who sort of deploy them in this, I wouldn't even say it's cynical, just like dumb way, like dumb ways, right? Like they subordinate them in just stupid ways to other projects they have where they don't even really seem to understand what they're doing. Right? Um, yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, it's sort of related to um, this piece I wrote in American Affairs about Foucault that, um, you know, it's partly just thinking about how he's so institutionalized, ironically, because he's fundamentally a critic of institutions, right? That, that he's mm-hmm. right. on the one hand, a kind of institutional, um, you know, almost saint or something like that within academia. But at the same time, he's fundamentally that, you know, his, the, the through line of all of his work was being critical <laughs> of, of modern institutions, right? So that's um, that's sort of a an odd contradiction just inherent in his in his current status, which I think we could also you know connect to what we were saying before about debates about CRT and so on. Is that yep. you have this weird um, evolution in in the past few decades where part of what what seems to um, get plugged into and sort of sustain these institutions are these often quite anti anti institutional discourses. Right. right? So yep. so there's um, and, and I think the one way that the right was wrong in its initial perception of all of this was imagining that this would simply lead to these institutions collapsing or something like that, right? That you right. have these venerable universities or whatever, and then they would be, all these anti-institutional ideas would be, um, you know, the denied things like objective truth or whatever would be brought in, and then it would just be impossible for them to sustain themselves. Well, right. I mean, what I would say is the opposite has happened in a sense, these these ideas have in a paradoxical way become part of the sort of guiding ethos of these institutions and is actually, is actually part of what keeps them going. Um, and so. I'd have to think about that because I was going to say um, where I was going to, where I thought you were going, but I'd be interested to see where I thought you were going was that just to say that they just kind of became subordinated to the institutions, like into the imperatives of the institution. But you're actually saying something a little different, which is they're sustaining them in some interesting way. I haven't really, I don't know what you mean. I mean, I'm interested in like, as opposed to just like you feed them into the maw of the institution and whatever this sort of explicit content is, they ultimately just end up being subordinate to its functionings. But you're saying something different, I think. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's a bit, it's, it's a bit complicated to characterize, but you know, one, one way I think about it is that, you know, you have this, you know, what's usually called sort of, I mean, in the context of academia, maybe corporatization, kind of, you know, neoliberalization. And, and so what's interesting to me is that these, a lot of these discourses become, let's just take a, a super simplified example. You know, where does theory appear in the art world? Well, primarily in like artist statements and things like that. So in other words, right. in the kind of marketing material. Right. And so in an odd way, these theories become a kind of mode of branding or yep. a kind of, um, you know, in these, these worlds that become <clears throat> hyper-competitive and about this kind of, you know, what Foucault called entrepreneurship of the self, um, for, for various reasons, these kind of theoretical discourses become plugged into that, right? And they become part of the the means through which that kind of competitive self-branding is, um, is sustained and is sort of um, perpetuated. So that's a, and, and I think the other point is that these institutions, you know, I mean, we've seen a lot of this recently, but, you know, on one hand, they seem to be, um, I mean, if, if you just think about all these institutional responses to like the Black Lives Matter protests last year, yeah. right? There are all these ways that they they suddenly have to um, to sort of, you know, engage in a reckoning, as they often say, with, with their past or with their, you know, structural um, inequalities and things like that. And so I think there's some way that the the insertion of these discourses in into these institutions becomes a kind of containment mechanism yep. so that so that when they're embattled in all these different ways um they they can kind of use it to um engage in a, in a kind of self-critique that um that is not completely destabilizing right that's yeah that's destabilizing only to the extent that um that they can sort of allow it to the, to the maximum extent that they can allow it to be right. Well, yeah. Well, while remaining to some degree, um, you know, still what they are, still what they are <laughs> while, while remaining right. still basically elite and hierarchical, right. And that's, elite and hierarchical that's and, and, and perpetuators of kind of inequality and increasing inequality. Yeah, no, that's true. And I, I guess, and I'm not sure who the most, you know, I, I feel like I've seen this critique more and more, which is like, it is just a kind of, there is a way in which, you know, the race and gender and sexuality stuff just kind of function as kind of a, I'm not sure what the black washing or pink washing or rainbow washing of just like, you know, hierarchical elite, you know, unequal inst- institutions that perpetuate all of those things, right? As long as the elite is appropriately diverse in all of these ways, then you know, we can kind of try and look away from all the ways in which our society is becoming you know, increasingly unequal or something. Um, yeah. And I mean, I wonder if, you know, perhaps tying it back to Hickey, I mean, two points. One, you know, he was a, a critic of institutions. And yep. so, you know, we can see on one level how these these seemingly very institutionalized thinkers who who we might expect him to be opposed to, like Foucault, could also be of use to him and of interest to him in that in that regard. And then, you know, kind of going back to this way that these institutions are fundamentally elitist and hierarchical, right? And that the the main way that they've shifted is that they've become more, um, I mean, on one, you know, initially they became kind of overtly meritocratic in their sort yeah. of guiding ideology. 
and sort of that that the meritocratic ethos became a a way of perpetuating elitism while claiming to denounce it. Um, right. And then I think the new version of that is this kind of um, this sort of equity ideology, right? Where yeah. where there's actually a kind of explicitly anti-meritocratic um, discourse, but that at the same time is it still has the same kind of function, right? Of of enabling a kind of uh, of enabling fundamentally structurally elitist institutions to disavow their own elitism, right? Um, and so anyway, that's that's a bit of an aside, but but so there is a way that these institutions are fundamentally that, right? And yeah. so this kind of relates to the way you also characterize Hickey as as being a you know ultimately a kind of democratic small d thinker, right? Yeah. And his sort of anti-institutional, although of course he did end up in academia himself, <laughs> but his nevertheless kind of anti-institutional positioning being related to a kind of, um, I, don't know, I don't know whether to call it populism, but maybe a kind of aesthetic populism or at least a kind of celebration of the, this, again, small d democratic character of American culture, which, you know, is, is part of what, um, it, you know, is it, part of what sets him at odds with these institutions, which he sees as as yep. fundamentally anti-democratic. I'm trying to think about how that's, to, like, that's kind of a lot, but yeah, know. but well, <laughs> and part of my hesitation is also like, and one of the things that I say in the book is, it, is it's ultimately a mistake in certain ways to try and divine too much of a kind of coherent theory from Hickey because it's not he's really an essayist. I mean, in some fundamental way, he's really like, you know, he sits down with a particular essay to write, you know, he's going to use the resources at hand and he's going to go where it's, where it feels interesting and there's energy and that, you know, and that might be in one direction one month and then another direction six months later. So it's a little bit like there's, there's certainly like trends, but it's a little bit difficult for me when I'm, when I'm sort of put on the spot in terms of trying to articulate his perspective. Yeah. I mean, he is a sort of like in a simple way and a straightforward way, in a true way, he is a kind of populist. Like he thinks that, you know, aesthetic populist. He thinks that you know uh, the Rolling Stones and um, you know Robert Maplethorpe and um, Foucault are all like. There's not some differentiation in sort of plane of quality or value that they exist on, right? That high and low. It's, it's sort of in the integrity or the power of the work, whatever it is, and and that 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 should be accessible to anybody. And he's hostile to institutions or people who suggest that you need the catalog text, you know, catalog text or the degree or the you know proper interpretive frame in order to appreciate the power of those things. Um, and he's critical of the institutions when he thinks that they are putting obstacles in the way of people um, appreciating or, or sort of experiencing firsthand the power of art. I mean, I don't, you know, <laughs> And I and he he believes, and I don't know if I believe this, but he believes that the sort of best stuff comes from small communities of artists kind of working together and in competition with each other for the favor of of, of whatever of the the buyers or the you know the rate you know airtime radio airtime or and I think in general he thinks that the the artistic mediums that tend to be most healthy are the ones with that kind of competition and and. Um, 
competition and collaboration are sort of freest to operate. And there's a, there's a kind of pure, purest kind of meritocracy or something like that. So I think he would probably feel like in most periods, um, pop music is in better health than, you know, a lot of the fine arts because there's somebody mediating institutions. So much of the career path of becoming an artist is getting the right MFA and then getting represented by the right gallery and then having the, the show, you know, the one person show at the right museum and getting the grant from the right philanthropic funder. There's so many sort of institutions that bring their own, their, their own um, incentive structure into play that have little to do with how powerful, that often have little to do with how powerful they find the work. So there's a kind of purity to like the, the market operation. Um, you know, no, no aspiring pop musicians getting a grant, seeking a grant to do their work. They have to go out on the road and, and build their audience and write songs that people care about, right? Um, I think you pointed out he ended up at, at UNLV. I mean, he is, he is more of a critic of the institutions than I am. Like, I, I think if institutions are important. I think liberal institutions are important. I just want them to be healthy, you know? And I, and I think he probably downplays the degree to which they can actually foster some of that activity that he ends up. Liking and, and he's an example. He's an example of that he did his best work when he was at UNLV and had a steady job, had health care, had a community of students that he, you know, in the context of this institution that supported them and him, that he could sort of play off of and, 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 and inspire and be inspired by. And so, you know, I, I think some of my, you know, some of my despair or frustration now is like, I love the university. Like I had a great experience. Like, I think it's not like being in college in the nineties and at grad school in the early 2000s. It's not like it was some golden age of, you know, intellectual production or of universities or something like that, but it was a pretty open space. I mean, that was my experience of it. Like it was a pretty open, it was not particularly politicized. Like I didn't feel forced into sort of really, kind of simple ways of thinking. I didn't feel like people were telling me how I had to think in order to sort of move forward in my life. So, you know, I, I mean, I mean, you're at an institution. <laughs> I mean, you're at a university, right? Um, I don't know if that's an answer to, to, to the question. I, I just sort of, you know, one of the things I like about Hickey is, you know, it is so, he is so clearly an essayist and it's weird that he's read sort of as a theorist. There's probably some reason for that. Like as a theorist rather than an essayist, you know, but I certainly read him as an essayist and it's just, you know, so one of the experiences of reading somebody who you love, who's doing all these different things that are often in tension or contradiction with each other is you kind of, you just quickly let go of that idea that they're telling you to think a certain way. It's just implicit in his whole project. He's not trying to produce accolades or, or followers. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, perhaps a distinction with, um, you know, there's this idea of like the critic who becomes an institution, right? It becomes right. the kind of arbiter. I mean, you brought up like Clement Greenberg or somebody like that. Um, you know, it's it seems like in some way you're saying he was sort of working against that model of the critic or attempting to not um, be that yeah. sort of arbiter. I think with Hickey, it's like like ascribing too much intentionality or strategy to it is always a mistake because it's just like he's, you know, he, He's, he doesn't know where he's going next. I mean, I mean that like it's an appealing, but he also is like super self-sabotaging and like, you know, I mean, he said to me multiple times, you know, like, I didn't know what it meant to have, he still doesn't, I didn't know what it meant to have a career. Like he just didn't know what he was, had no plan. Like, yeah. and so, yeah, I mean, he's, it flows pretty organically from who he is that he, that he wasn't trying to become 
an institution, um, but it was not because he likes had some, not because he set out to to uh, to be not that, you know. And it's not like he selected, you know. I'm sure he was influenced by some people who themselves, you know, became institutions like Foucault, and some people who weren't. Like he just again, he just went where where he was going to go and didn't know where he was going to be. You know, yeah, a year from now. I mean, even like the books he wrote, like he's not, he didn't sit down and say, I'm going to write Invisible Dragon. Like his editor at the time at, at uh, um, Gary Kornblau at the magazine where he was publishing a lot of his stuff was just like, I think, like, just, I think there's a book here. Here's what I think it is, Dave. You know, can you, what do you think? Can you revise these essays? And, and, and I mean, Kornblau said to me, like, with Air Guitar, he's like, I, he's like, I knew for a few years that we were working towards a collection of essays, but I didn't tell Dave. Because that would have that would have just been too much for me. Couldn't handle it. Like it would have been too much pressure. So it was like I just waited till I had the essays. I thought we're in it, and then and then handed them back to him and said, you know, you know, do you want to revise these? And we kind of went back and forth for a while, what they were. But but Dave didn't plan anything in a way. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I get the sense in this book that you know you and tell me if I'm wrong, but. It's it's very much a book that's a an appreciation, right? Yes. It's a it's a it's a work. It's 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 itself a work of sort of appreciative criticism, much in the manner that much of his writing was. Yeah. Right. And so it's it's a nice um, you know continuity between subject and manner of treatment um, in the book that I think it 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 sort of shows us what you know, precisely the mode that you're attempting to appreciate about his, his writing. It was very much as a, it very much as a work of appreciation. And, and, and uh, this is, I will preempt this, my um, defensiveness by saying this, this is going to sound moderately defensive because a few of the reviews, it hasn't got enough time, a few of the reviews are like, you know, I, I think they use the word fanboy. Um, and, and it's like, it's hard to hear because that's a bad thing to be. Um, and I am not, you know, I, this is not to say that, that I struck the bat. It's like, it's a hard thing to do to write sort of admiringly of someone or something else, particularly of someone else. You know? And I mean, I include, like, I make a pilgrimage to see him, you know, at his home in Santa Fe, right? Like, it's a hard, it, 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 there's, there's some way to do it that maybe would sort of protect you against kind of accusations of being too much of a fanboy or just a, a you know, a door of, um, but I did what I will say, which is defensive, but also true is like, that was, you know, it was very deliberate. Like he writes mostly for someone who is sort of seen as a, as a critical figure, like most of what he's writing is in praise of things, you know, and he actually has some good lines that I, I can't quote at hand about how sort of praise is the most, I think he's talking about Mapplethorpe actually, praise is the most destabilized, is like the most destabilizing pose actually. And he has this great, and I, you know, who knows if this is true, but he had this great passage in one of the essays in Invisible Dragon, where he's talking that at the same time that Maplethorpe is causing such waves, he cited these other artists, I forget who they were, who were also dealing with the same subject matter. You know, but but he's saying in their treatment of it, um, it was kind of dark and and tortured, that there was a lot of pathos in their treatment, these other artists' treatment of, you know, uh, SM and just, you know, gay male sexuality or something like that. And he's like, well, that's not. You know, I mean, it was pathos of of, the, of that life, but also of the society that sort of like suppresses them and all of these things. And saying, well, that was fine. That fit into everybody's sort of template for what this stuff should be. That wasn't destabilizing. What was destabilizing was that Maplethorpe was presenting this work as beautiful and and pleasurable. And and so 
he believes that that praise can be sort of a powerful mode. Um, praise, admiration can be a, a powerful, critical mode. Um, I think for me, choosing to write it in that way was less some idea I had about what was the more, most powerful mode as much as just like, um, I think he talks a lot about, you know, I mean, probably he talks a lot about love in a sense, like love of, of things, love of people, love of art. Um, and the, and, I, and I'm, I can just be super earnest about that. Like it just, for me, it felt like it would be false in some fundamental way to like strike more critical distance from him than I did. Like this is, he's writing about the ways in which like communities of passionate artists and intellectuals produce extraordinary things that connect people across time and space and to like do a treatment of that. Not that, not that it would be wrong, but for me to do a treatment of that, that just acted as though I were just a kind of dispassionate observer, just felt like it would be false. So I sort of pushed myself to be more, more vulnerable in that sense than, than, than I would normally be because my, usually my writerly voice is pretty dispassionate and sort of, you know, sort of reserved in that way. Um, and it probably was still in some ways, but in other ways, I really pushed myself to be, be pretty vulnerable and earnest. I don't know. I've, I've also become so disaffected from so many publications that like, <laughs> like stopped reading a lot of the things I used to read. Um, yeah. So that's, that's like kind of cut me off from like the places where I might have previously turned. So I just like, I feel like I don't read very much criticism these days. Which, yeah. But because I'm, I'm just like, I'm, you know, and irrationally because like I have, it's not as if I don't read good criticism sometimes, but I think I found the overall thrust of it so disheartening that I, um, that I kind of just decided to stop paying attention. And this, you know, this kind of relates to a hickey, um, a hickey thought that or connection that I had when I was reading this, which is something people often bring up is, um, which I think illustrates something interesting in relation to his, his ideas um, or his, let's say, positioning is, um, you know, I'm trying, like an example I remember was when there was this like new Dave Chappelle special that, yeah. that was, you know, had some controversial remark, but it, you know, whatever, it's Dave Chappelle. And there was like, you know, if you looked at the uh, Rotten Tomatoes or whatever, it right. was like, you know, the critics were all, it was like 20% positive right. or something, and, but then like, the, audience the audience was 99% positive. So it's one interesting thing on the internet in relation to this kind of aesthetic populism is you literally have this, you can see this contrast really clearly, right? Because you usually have these sites, whatever the medium that sort of aggregate reviews right. from, you know, the the experts and institutional insiders and then you just have whatever the uh the public says in the amazon ratings or the whatever and so you know that contrast seems like it it crystallizes this this point rather clearly yeah um and and that there is is an opposition between these two positions often i was thinking on that point and it's interesting like you know, and Chappelle's, Chappelle's brilliant. And he, he actually is one of those figures. I think he continues to be, who's sort of unpredictable, right? Like, I just don't know, like, sit down to watch Dave Chappelle Netflix special. I don't know where he's going to fucking go. And like, and it's great. Um, But I'm thinking about like how much money, I often think about how much money all these institutions are leaving on the table. It's interesting with Netflix, because Netflix is like, fuck you, I'm going to sign Dave Chappelle for a hundred million dollars because everybody wants, they know everybody wants to see Dave Chappelle. Even Netflix is not immune to some of this shit, but it's it's heartening to see 
that. And then I'm thinking about like Substack and, and, and I was thinking two figures as I was thinking about this. So Freddie DeBoer, like all the money that fucking is, that these magazines are leaving on the table by not making Freddie DeBoer like a staff writer. Like how stupid is that? Like that guy writes like 18,000 words a day and it's like, you know, some of it's bad, but I mean, some of it is brilliant, right? He's just like a weird autodidact kind of brilliant fucked up figure. Um, and, and, and why would you not have that guy? Like, I mean, somebody could have had him so cheap right now. Now he's making a bunch of money. I was going to say through stuff, Substack, but just through subscribers, right? Like now he's making a bunch of money and, and he's not cheap, but like he was literally writing posts where he's like, I don't have a job. Like I need a job. And it's like, if somebody had come in and said, we'll give you like, you know, mediocre staff writer salary for like, you know, we'll pay $55,000 a year and give you health insurance. I like, probably would have jumped at it, right? And like that guy drives so much traffic. It's like, why is everybody leaving that, leaving that on the table, you know, or, or, this is different because he's a different figure, but like Wesley Yang, I mean, it's interesting. Wesley Yang is a different figure because if, if like Freddie DeBoer writes 18,000 words a day, like Wesley Yang like writes nothing basically. Like Wesley Yang, like, I don't know if you're a Yang reader or admirer. I mean, yeah, I mean I he's, a kind, lot of a, of he's like, kind of a friend. Um, oh, is he? I mean, an internet, internet friend, but. Internet friend. I mean, a lot <laughs> of like the basic, like, I think like intellectual infrastructure of like the more sort of thoughtful anti-woke people was like laid down by Wesley Yang. Like, like that guy, and he actually could have a platform, right? And tablets. Like, I think for him, he's just, I, I don't know him, but like, he seems to have a hard time getting stuff out on the page, like, you know, but, but um, I, it's interesting how much, it's just like to the point of how much money institutions are choosing to leave on the table by not giving homes to these people. Um, yeah, and it's and it's interesting, you know, kind of in relation to this Hickeyan opposition between sort of institutional, a sort of institutional chokehold that, um, you know, um, you know, allows itself or or um, kind of arrogates the the uh, ability to to assign value versus this much more kind of freewheeling bottom-up um, kind of democratic and, and you know, market-based um, assignation of value. I mean, it's interesting how the internet, you know, which which I guess, you know, most of his sort of major criticism, interestingly, like just preceded the, uh, the rise of the internet or the mainstreaming of the internet. Um, yeah. But, you know, it does really present that to us in all sorts of ways. And what's odd is that it's both kind of made the institutions even more suffocating, you know, the same institutions that he criticized kind of even more suffocating and even more um, puritanical in their, in the way they go about, you know, assigning value, but at the same time, it's, so it's, it's obviously had a negative effect in that regard, right? It's, it's right. clearly worsened criticism. It's clearly worsened, you know, just mainstream publishing of all sorts um, but at the same time, it's sort of allowed a this other, you know, more democratic and freewheeling sort of chaotic yep. um, economy to have, you know, different mechanisms for assigning value that, again, are often uh, directly at odds with the institutional ones. Yep. Well, I was, just, I was thinking about kind of like your institutions and sort of right. So like the, the rise of the Internet and the blogosphere like produced this kind of great flowering of voices. And it seemed like it held out enormous promise. And then these other 
internet social media mechanisms came into play and, and, and created this sort of just like incredible sclerosis of certain kinds of a rigidity of certain institutions. And, and, and it's, you know, one of the things that I think about, and I think about it with people like DeBoer or Yang or whatever, and, and Hickey is, you know, um, it's great to say we have all these other sort of platforms and so on, but a lot of the people I find most interesting are people who probably kind of need institutions because they're like these weird freak, unstable figures and, and, and actually locating them within a pretty healthy institution it is probably the optimal circumstance for them to produce. And I think about um, Hickey just needed all these forces around him to come into alignment to, to provide the right level of anchoring and security for him to do his best work. When he was totally out on his own, it was just like he actually didn't do his best work. He was too, he was hopping from assignment to assignment. He didn't know himself what he should be writing. Um, he didn't have time to like just sit down and like revise things and pull them together and, into collections. And, and so, I, you know, it's great that, that there's Substack and, and Yang just launched a Substack. I don't know if I'll be able to write anything for it, but, um, you know, I'm glad DeBoer and Andrew Sullivan's on Substack and, 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 you know, some of these figures can work out, are anchored enough themselves to work outside of institutions and have influence, but some of them aren't, you know, and I'm not sure it's like, I wish we had, I mean, for all of its faults, which were real, like I wish the New Republic, like I wish the old New Republic was still around and like hiring these, these people um, and just being the, the kind of old sort of asshole-ish, you know, New Republic or, you know, or Slate was its old sort of like annoyingly counterintuitive contrarian space. Um, you know, or Harper's under Lewis Lapham was it's like weird, idiosyncratic, patrician, lefty, waspy thing or something like that. Like, I think those, those like, you know, those, those institutions had space for people like that who kind of needed that anchoring. And, you know, I, like, I don't know what the outcome is going to be in terms of, of, um, you know, the intellectual output of our, of our time. I'm trying to like, like, the point is pretty good. I don't know if you've written for them or you read them. I read um, I ha and haven't written for it, but yeah, I agree. Uh, N plus one was interesting and now it's not, it seems like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, yeah, I think, you know, speaking from my perspective as somebody who like both has my own occasional blog, you know, which I'm not super productive on, but, um, and then also has, you know, gets assignments sort of sporadically. Yeah. Um, you know, and at this point, basically, if I have my own idea, I usually write it for the blog. Like, I don't tend to pitch because I, I also have a job. And do, so, like, I'll get assignment. But, yeah, I mean, still, um, as you said, you know, it's um, being, and this is why I think, you know, there are sort of limitations to the Substack economy is basically just that um, part of, you know, people say, like, oh, you need editors. But I think what, you know, what they mean is you need people to, like, whatever cross T's and dot I's, but I, I don't think that's as true as right, that no, you need no. editors who will say, um, what do you think of this idea or who will, you know, you, you need editors who are, who are part of a kind of, um, yeah, institutional um, context that, that gives, gives a particular framing and meaning to your work. And that also, yep. you know, prompts you to, 
to go in certain directions. And I think it puts you in relationship with other people on staff, right? Like, like there should be a publication that has you and Blake and I don't know who else it would be on staff and, and puts you and you know, and it's about Hickey talking about these communities. Like, yeah, I want, you know, like I want Freddie DeBoer in relationship with really smart people who disagree with him. Right. I think like he's too of a, he's too much of a lone wolf. Like he would actually benefit from being able to refine his ideas and push them in new directions in relationship to some other people. And, and it, and it's like, I think, and I want that magazine. Like I want to, I want, I want to read a magazine where I feel like it's, you know, I mean, I think back to like, I had all sorts of issues with, it's funny that I'm now celebrating like the early years of Influence One. Like I, like I had all sorts of issues with that, but they had a voice that they had a like, we're going to be these like uber serious humorless, you know, old school leftist intellectuals or something like that, like kind of arrogant. And it was like, it was infuriating, but it was like, gave structure to like what they were doing. And, you know, it's been interesting to me to see the kind of rise, you know, because I sort of, you know, I was in academia, did a PhD and so on. So it was only, I guess, around um, 2000. I mean, I finished my PhD in 2012. So it was around then in 2013, 2014, that I started writing for some of these kind of new little magazines on the left. And, yeah. um, and also have my own, not the same blog I have now, but, but a previous incarnation um and in any case you know was it it's because i feel like those spaces were all i mean if you take a publication like jacobin that i've written for but not for a number of years now like it was a lot more kind of freewheeling and chaotic in the sense of like the range of what they would publish and yeah. i think that but that itself was kind of the you know that there was a, a project of you know what i'll say in the defense of the sort of early jacobin even though again it had it had flaws um is there, there was a kind of project of just like reinvigorating mm-hmm. discussion and debate on the left. And thus there was a kind of variety of perspectives. And, and there was also, because it, it had not yet become tied to a particular project, i.e. the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, yeah. you know, which was in a way the death of its, its sort of interesting phase um, because it essentially had to become just a, a sort of propaganda outlet. Um, but you know, it's been interesting to see the rise and fall of this. And, you know, it's, it, you know, to me, the, and I'll, I'll give a shout out here to my very first guest on this podcast, Angela Nagel, um, uh-huh. who, you know, also wrote for all those magazines. And I think seeing the way that she was thrown under the bus and basically treated horribly by those people who had previously published her and given her a platform because of some ultimately mild heresies you know, was, was to me a real, it was one of the wake up moments where I saw that these publications had become institutional in the worst possible way. And, you know, that I I think was a depressing thing to observe um, the way that they had just become these repositories of inflexible orthodoxy very quickly, right. And in just a kind of six or seven year cycle. So So I think, yeah. This is a stupid this is a stupid question. I mean, it's an interestingly stupid question, but like, like who wants this? I mean, it's a stupid question because the answer is lots of people, right? Like churchy people, um, churchy in the broad sense. Like, but like who, who wants this? Like, who is this interesting to? Like, it's not interesting to anyone. I mean, I guess it feels good on some level, but it's like, it's still sort of bizarre to me how many people who 
got into the game that you and I are in. And I thought I knew why people got into that game. And it was because of like the joy of like, of writing and thinking, and think, you know, and just like, but obviously like, I didn't think you became a writer just to go to church or something like that, but obviously I'm wrong. Like, obviously a lot of people like, who fucking wants this. Like, I don't like, I mean, to go back to the Chappelle thing, like who watches Dave Chappelle and is like, Oh, you know, this is, and, and, and gives it the negative. Like who doesn't watch Dave Chappelle and just revel in them, that guy's artistry. And I mean, not just, beyond just the funniness, just the mastery, like the ability of that guy to get up there and just the things he can do, like to watch that and just, and come with, up with some dour take on it, it's, it's so mystifying to me. But, you know, like I just, I was, this is, a, this is, it's a weird association with just where I was yesterday. I was at, um, museum up in Amherst, the um, Eric Carl picture book museum, Eric Carl's the artist who did a very hungry caterpillar, right? And it's a noble endeavor, but I, you know, I mean, what a fucking joyless space, right? Like my kids start running around like in an exhibition room with, with um, like a road painted on it. It's like a, it's an exhibition of some of Carl's art that dealt with like transportation, like boats and planes and cars, right? And so they have a they have a road sort of painted on the floor and there's a little bridge that goes over painted water or something like that. And my kids start running around it. And the docent's like, you know, like we really try and observe a speed limit. And like she may literally have said, like we try and observe a speed limit. And everyone's like, everybody's so quiet, you know, and there's, and I'm just walking around this place and I'm like, it's a fucking children's museum that like where kids can't run around or be loud. And that's what I feel like reading some of these magazines. It's like a magazine of like intellectual endeavor where nobody can like think in a sort of wild, interesting way. It's like, why does anybody want it? Um, I don't I don't get it. I mean, I sort of get it. I don't get it. Like it's very just depressing. And and it's like to the point, you know, you and I were talking about this kind of like the role of institutions and like um It's great. I mean, it is great. Like there's still a lot more good stuff to read than there was when I was sort of, you know, in the eighties or nineties or sort of before the internet, before the blogosphere, like it's still better. And I need to remind myself of that, but there's also still a lot of isolation, right? It's like, you know, you guys have each other on your podcasts and sometimes there'll be Q and A's or something like that, but there's not that great, like in the early days of the blogosphere, everybody's linking everybody else. And it's sort of, fisking each other and sort of that sense of kind of connection and, and, and interrelation. I don't feel like that's happening nearly as much as I want. I get parts of it, you know, so-and-so will have one podcaster I like, will have another writer I like on it and, and I'll get a kind of moment of it, but then that kind of evanesces and it doesn't seem to necessarily build on each other, or create some sort of coherent conversation um, that I want to be a part of, or just a, an observer of, if not necessarily a participant. Yeah, and I think this, I mean, again, that that's, uh, you know, very closely related to what Hickey seemed to value and appreciate in the sort of cultural sphere. And um, I kind of, I mean, it sort of relates to the final point I wanted to bring up, which was this, um, you bring up um, his a never completed book project called Pagan America yeah. in the beginning of the book. 
And I thought that was fascinating. I mean, I'm always interested in like books that were never written, uh-huh. but I found that really fascinating. And, you know, you also kind of make the point that, you know, that this project is both vital and interesting, but it it's, it's also kind of sad to contemplate in a sense because, and I think this goes into what we were just saying. There's, there's a, there is a sense of the kind of defeat of pagan Americans. Yeah. Right. Yes. Since in recent times. And um, so I wonder if you could just talk about what this pagan America project was and kind of how it, how it looks yeah, today. No. Um, I think, yeah. And I think what, what, what sort of how he conceptualized it was, you know, he saw that there was this kind of, I mean, he would trace it back to like ancient Greece or something like that, like imagining the, you know, uh, my, my, my ancient Greek history is not good, so, so I apologize, but imagining some plaza where there's like the different temples to the different gods and it's intermixed with the stalls selling, you know, selling food and, and beautiful tapestries and, and urns and things like that. And it's just this sort of cosmopolitan, you know, in a way, cosmopolitan is probably a better word for it than pagan, just because pagan tends to make people think of like druids and like the forest. And that's not the pagan that he's thinking of. He's thinking of like paganisms. And I think in a sense, like early Christianity conceived of it, like non-monotheists, you know, so, so, um, you know, the, 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 the paganism of the, of the, of the port city where all these different cultures kind of mix and where there's a lot of like, you know, um, paganism of Venice or something like that. And it's, you know, in the late middle ages or something like that, where there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of commerce and there's cultures intermixing and there's goods moving, you know, from across the world through, through the streets and canals and, you know, the, the Medici's are, are intriguing and, and it's all interesting and dramatic and sexy. And, you know, that connects to, to Maplethorpe, it connects to Warhol, it connects to, um, outlaw country singers in the 1970s. These are just his, his cultural reference points. You know, it's Weimar Germany. It's that kind of vibe that he thought was, he thought was or could be the kind of dominant mode of American existence, or at least a competing mode with the sort of puritanical one. And I think, and it's interesting, I, didn't, I don't want to sound too deliberate about this. Like I have a little passage in the book about the 90s and like how pleasant the 90s were you know, um, you know, during the sort of brief end of history or something like that and, and how uncomfortable people were with that. And I think, I think, I think Hickey's perspective was, it was like, was like that, but, but going and getting more, more sort of wonderfully decadent and pagan. And, um, and I'm a sort of defender of the movies. Like, you know, I mean, you remember when, like after 9-11, when there were all these, I mean, it wasn't just neocons, it was always like the return of seriousness, the end of irony turn of seriousness to America. And I, not that I wasn't swept up in that too. I was in various bad ways, but it was, there was a real like disgust for the nineties. Right. And, and it's sort of lack of seriousness and, and, and great purpose. And I think his vision of, 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 of pagan America was, was like the nineties, but, but um, that it, that it kept going, that we didn't have 9-11 and the financial recession, and, you know, a thousand cultural flowers, Bloomed. I mean, maybe his vision of the '90s was like the the fun parts of the '60s. Maybe not the, the the unfun parts of the '60s, but the fun parts of the '60s and maybe the '70s. I mean, don't you always like? I always have the sense that everybody in the '70s just like was growing their hair long and having a lot of sex and doing a lot of drugs. And, um, and, and it does seem like um, 
the reason he didn't finish the book is, is, is probably more because like what I was saying before about how he had to be sort of tricked into writing the books in the first place. And it was like, he, he, he signed a contract and that was probably the minute he signed the contract, that was probably the end of any likelihood that he was actually going to write pagan America from just a psychological perspective, but also, you know, things changed and that vision of pagan America is less, is much harder as time goes on to, to hold as a really sort of, plausible scenario. Um, yeah, I mean, I almost think of it, I think the 9-11 references is key here because you had, you know, in a sense, pagan America was, you know, what we might say, like Osama bin Laden saw himself as attacking, right? That, right. that you know, what what is the jihad against? Well, in a sense, it's against this, you know, this culture that you could see as continuous with the cultures that the original you know, Mohammedan jihad was was waged against, right? Um, and so, you know, that might give too much credit, <laughs> but I mean, I think there is some there is some sense that it's that it was that, right? That that there was a recognition on the part of of the attackers that they were attacking something that was um, that was continuous with the the pagan yeah, and there's some sort of awful... struggled with, and then that generated a, a sort of equal and opposite or series of equal and opposite reactions in the US towards this kind of recovery of whatever elements of sort of austere monotheism are, are you know, baked into our own cultural sphere. Yeah, that is a kind of awful historical irony, right? Like, so he attacked us for our paganism and in response to that, and this is collapsing a million different forces into, into some simple narrative, but in response to that, we essentially became less pagan, right? I mean, that didn't make, that doesn't make, you know, the ghost of Osama bin Laden any happier. Um, but, but it's, it's, it feels tragic, right? Like, like in response to this attack, we were not able to sort of I don't, I don't even like double down because that's like the language of the kind of moralism or something like that. We, we, were, we were unable to sort of continue to nourish in the same way our pagan impulses. We retreated back to that kind of monotheistic um, frame and, and, and not just the right. I mean, that's the most oppressive part, right? Like you can, you can say, okay, yeah, the right's gonna, is, it's gonna do that, right? Because it wanted to do that all along. But, but the left, you know, that, that we that we're in such a sort of puritanical churchy moment and it's self-imposed is so depressing. It's interesting. I was, I was, um, David Mamet is an interesting figure, has a book coming out and I just have seen like 150 word capsule description of it, but, but he's going to make the argument. And I haven't found him a particularly interesting or reliable political commentator. So I don't know what this argument, but, but, but he's going to make the argument that the right is now the home of that kind of like dissident heterodox, spirit that's a little hard for like we'll see i don't i don't I mean, know I, where that is i guess kind of returning to my earlier slight provocation you know we could yeah. see then trump as kind of the return of the repressed pagan america but in this sort of you know in shitty pathological, way in this sort of pathological form right but but that did you know at least um <laughs> carry with it this kind of you know, because because I think in his earlier incarnate, his sort of pre-political incarnation, you know, he was one version of that spirit, right? This kind yes, of gaudy, right. gaudy, excessive figure. Um, 
who was very much of that time and place, right? And and particularly of the the '90s, I would say. And so that he returns as a as a political figure who strangely amalgamates some of that kind of exuberant pagan spirit with yep. this kind of odd um, this this kind of simmering stew of sort of resentment uh, of of kind of monomaniacal yep. resentment that I would that I would take to be you know, in, in some ways deeply opposed to that um, is, is sort of, you know, it's a, it's a weird hybrid, I would say, because he, right. he managed to it recapture is. some of that energy. And, you know, as I talked about with Blake also, he, he kind of gives these, these sort of, this particular set of dour Puritans a weird outlet for enjoyment in the sort of yep. psychoanalytic sense, you know, he, yep. he's kind of someone who can enjoy for them. And so these, these kind of prim and proper, um, you know, evangelicals or whatever can kind of get this strange frisson of enjoyment in the in yep. a weirdly similar way, I would say, to how these kind of feminists could do that with Clinton in the 90s, where they could right. be like, right. you know, it, there was kind of this version of feminism that was, you know, the the, the sort of sex negative one that, yeah. that was quite powerful in that time. But then suddenly this figure came in who you could kind of still maintain a lot of that, but at the same time have this little free song of enjoyment. Yep. Um, and so Trump was kind of like that for the, you know, formerly Tea Party, you know, you think of as these kind of dour um, deniers of enjoyment, right? Who, who, right. Who, who think everybody should just, you know, be sort of pinching their pennies. And so right. you have this, this figure of kind of gaudy excess who they embrace, yeah. you know, there's something very odd going on there where, they kind of latch onto this resurgent pagan energy, but then it's attached to this opposed energy of just this kind of resentful bitterness. I think that, I mean, I, yeah, and I, I kind of love listening to you guys talk about that. And it seems, it, it almost seems undeniable to me. Like it just seems it, like, it seems so true that it's just like so obviously true that I, I don't even like, I can't even, you know, quibble with it. Um, unfortunately it's not very, like, I think it's true. I, I don't find Trump, you know, people like, but it's so thin, right? It's like, it's such a thin, maybe in part because it has to be so like, like kind of bounced off so many different angles or because it in includes all these other toxic things, like whatever. I like, I enjoyed Trump when he was a sideshow. And then it's like, you know, people always talk about, like, have you heard people talk about how funny Rush Limbaugh was? And I'm like, like, I mean, I guess like he wasn't funny. Like Dave Chappelle is funny. Like, like mostly he was just like awful and toxic and just pouring poison into people's ears. Right. And like, it's a random association. Like I remember like Camille Paglia, who's such a, have such mixed feelings about, right. But like she would write things that were sort of really like uh, kind of treating sort of affirming things, treating figures like Limbaugh and Sean Hannity in particular and Bill O'Reilly as these sort of interesting pagan masculine figures. And I, I was just like, I saw what she was doing, but I was just like, so it's like not really like like they're just so toxic like it, it's such a thin version of that you know and, and you know it's like when the right tried to like replicate the daily show or something like that like it was it's not like that conceptually is impossible to imagine it's just like they couldn't pull it off right it's like I'll, which is why i'm skeptical of like the mammoth project like show me the you know show me the receipts or something like that like where's the actual stuff that has that kind of depth and sophistication and and pagan energy transgressive pagan energy and then i'll start taking you seriously but until you show me the actual cultural product like 
you just, you guys just don't seem to be able to do it. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I think my, my semi answer to that would be, um, I mean, it, it sort of ties back to something I've discussed with other guests, which is, you know, I'd say the place where you do find that like it, or, you know, in a way that's both, you know, and I think this would tie back to sort of say Hickey's complicated relationship to, you know, Mapplethorpe's art where, where you, um, you know, you acknowledge the kind of dark energies of it. Um, but, you know, in the case of, I, I would say, you know, you do have this bizarre um, set of subcultures that emerge, right? Which is basically the kind of, whatever, the kind of Trump, the kind mm-hmm. of um, pre-Trump sort of troll culture of 4chan and things like that. And I think there is a real sort of authentic subversive energy to that, which yeah. is is extremely ugly and unpleasant, but... Um, but did succeed in exercising a major cultural impact despite being completely, uh, you know, completely outside of any institution. And, you know, I think, um, I mean, I also spoke to this, um, you know, filmmaker Alex Moyer about the movie um, TFW No GF, you know, which is like a profile of several of, of several people who are kind of involved in that <laughs> culture, no, just, you know, random, uh, you know, ex-urban dudes yeah um who kind of got caught up in that right but it's it's also true that as soon as that so then they kind of latched themselves onto the trump thing not not necessarily out of any particular political conviction but because they i think appreciated the kind of exuberant subversive pagan energy of the whole thing but then you know what really happened was as soon as it got channeled into that particular political project it also kind of withered on the vine i mean it yeah it, it kind of lost its vitality and you know it's true that the the i think trump did or his campaign did kind of cleverly tap into that and see it yep. as something that could have a certain you know have a certain cultural impact and force but you know the, it it did as soon as it became plugged into this kind of right-wing political project it it really um lost a lot of that and it it doesn't really exist to the same extent today i mean i would say there are still these kind of accounts and you know anonymous accounts that are are both like funny and aesthetically interesting that are out there that are sort of vaguely part of that sphere but you know there, there was something there that was that was notable aesthetically and that nobody saw coming and that was originally politically amorphous and was even sort of embraced by people on the left early on, but then that, you know, kind of shapeshifted until it attached itself to the whole Trump thing. And then that, that was ultimately kind of the death of it. So. That's really interesting. And that's not a realm that I have spent any time in or have any kind of sensitive understanding of. I know like, you know, it seems like Yang's, a lot of his early stuff was kind of an observer of some of that like a lot of his early insights came, you know, and, and why he was so far ahead on some of these things was from, observing both kind of left and, and far left and far right sort of cultures. I, it's interesting to go back to the our discussion about the institutions, like maybe part of the problem is there is that genuine aesthetic subversive energy, but it needs to sort of graduate from kind of that space on the internet into something that could have real cultural meaning that take form. It needs some conduit up, up into through, through structures. Right. And, and that, that, you know, part of the reason, like, the Daily Show of the Right fails is because there's no available pool of, like, comedy writing talent 
that comes in that political space, right? So there's no, I mean, Hollywood's like, it is super liberal, right? And so, and there's no, you know, you need, how would that stuff work its way up into actually producing a writer of note or, or you know, the, that sort of fortune and stuff into producing a, a writer or a comic or a, you know, showrunner or filmmaker of note, and it probably just missed, it's missing all these runs on the ladder or something. Like that was a real energy. Yeah, and and unfortunately, what it gets, the institution that it does get attached to, is sort of party politics, and right. you know that's that's ultimately going to be the most deadening kind of, as we're seeing on the opposite side of you know it's you know basically what I'm saying I'm reacting to is the way that you know the sort of democratic party propaganda machine has just gradually absorbed so much in the way of, of culture, you know, previously at least somewhat autonomous sort of cultural institutions that, that, you know, it's sort of a, a deadening monoculture on, on either side. And, um, you know, and that's unfortunately the, the, if the institution, if the sort of guiding institutions are those of party politics, you know, I don't, I don't see much, much hope for that being a kind of fruitful institutionalization. But, you know, kind of going back to Hickey, I mean, he he seems like an interesting figure in that he doesn't, you know, he, he has this kind of, again, aesthetic populism and appreciation of sort of small D democracy yeah. in the cultural sphere, which, which seems different. And, you know, I think we could maybe go back to his critiques of the other defenders of yeah. controversial artists that, that seems somewhat different from the kind of standard kind of reassertion of liberal norms um, yeah. viewpoint. So I, I think maybe he's an interesting figure for thinking through the limitations of that particular kind of way of responding to the current state of things. Yeah, I'm thinking like, this is just, I think this is a grain of salt. Like I'm thinking about what you said, cause I like reading these sort of critiques of liberalism, which you were talking about how you kind of have sympathy with from various directions and my intuition is, and, and I'm not like, I just, it's just the kind of thinker I am. I don't think I'm in touch with like necessarily what's coming next in some sort of theoretical way. Like, I, I just don't think I can see around the corner, right? Like, is this, is this the, is this the crisis of liberal? There have been crises of liberalism before, right? And they said, everything's going to change, right? And they were wrong, right? Like liberalism reasserted itself in various ways. Is this the crisis of liberalism that will actually lead to whatever the next thing is like I just have no idea you know like I, I don't feel like I have instincts about that and I don't but but I guess what I so, so so my instincts are my instincts are just what was is what will be right which is which is a safe play and so even if that's wrong I guess what I would say is I suspect liberalism in kind of just this sort of traditional sense will reassert itself but I have this intuition that in order for it to do that, that the resources, and this is something seems like it's some of the stuff that Blake is doing, like the resources for its revitalization will in some way exist, come from without it or something, like from outside of it in some, in some way that I just, like I have no idea what that means, but it just, I just feel it. So it's like the problem with like the persuasions or liberties or some of these is like they're, they're trying to reassert it in these old, from within it or something like that. And I, and I like you think that's not going to work. Like it just, and I'm utterly in the space of just like gut feelings about this stuff, but that it's revitalization, if it happens, will come from 
critiques of it, or it's not even necessarily like, like, like explicit critiques of it. I mean, to think about it from the Hickey perspective, you know, it, it, it'll be artists or something like that. It'll be writers or visual artists or musicians or something who, who, who are not operating from within that frame or something like that, who will produce the resources for its revitalization. So, so I think if you have asked me to place my money, and again, this is just the safe bet, like this will not be the crisis of liberalism that produces its, its successor um, dispensation or something like that. That said, just reasserting the old nostrums of liberalism is, will be inadequate to the task of revitalizing liberalism. Does that make sense? Like, I, I'm not sure yeah. like, what form no, of sure. critique that. Mm-hmm. I feel like you, you probably would be able to put, attach a sort of more theoretical framework to that. That's more of a, just a kind of gut feeling that I've evolved. And, and, and I think some of it has come from like reading Hickey closely and thinking about the ways in which he talks about art as opposed to explicit theory just sort of destabilizing things, but 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 also revitalizing, and 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 so I, that's that's my gut sense, but I don't know what it yeah, is. And I and I, I mean, and this also, um, you know, I think it points us to something that, you know, maybe it's a good good place to end. But I I like the the way you framed it as, um, and and perhaps this is like the limitation or or what. I don't know. I mean, maybe Blake is better at this than I am, but, um, you know, the kind of projects that people like he and I are undertaking um, is that, you know, there's, I mean, I'd say in my case, there's perhaps not enough attunement to aesthetics and to, you know, the, the spaces where cultural, you know, revitalization or, or simply um, valuable cultural critique might emerge that are, that are not, that are not theoretical and intellectual so much as aesthetic. Yeah. And so, you know, I think Hickey is somebody we can turn to, to, you know, to look around at the world and see, you know, because essentially he was somebody who looked around at the world and found things like outlaw country or, right. um, which by the way, I love that part of the book um, or, you know, Las Vegas or, you know, these, these sort of um, neglected sources of cultural vitality and aesthetic yeah. vitality that, that maybe others were, were missing out on because of the sort of institutional valuations of the time. And so, um, you know, I think he's somebody who, at least as I think about him as for his relevance for today, should sort of motivate us to, to look around the world in that way and see what, see what those things are. You know, I think I had one good episode recently that, that helped me do this a little bit for um, thinking about reality TV as, mm-hmm. as one such possible area. And, yeah. um, you know, that book reality squared, uh, by Tom Cyberson is kind of an interesting example of this kind of appreciative criticism. Yeah. And so, you know, I, th- I think this is, I'm realizing something I haven't been doing enough of and that I kind of want to do more of. So. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it's just sort of thinking about like, you know, I to say two things and, and I'll, I'll let you go. <laughs> this is fun for me, but, um, you know, one is it's fascinating to me, like at the same time that I'm saying all these negative things about the intellectual moment we're in, it's also fascinating to me to have a sort of meta awareness of all of the like, like all of the like thesis, antithesis, synthesis, evolutions, right? Like, like find, like locating, you on this sort of like, like, how did we get to where it like, but it totally makes sense, right? In a way 
that you're doing the work that you're doing right now. You know, and, and what all of the things that had to precede it, all of these sort of, for it even to make sense as a project, it's so fascinating. And that's an interesting part of being right now, as I think when, I'm not sure you could have, like it's the, the, the tumult of the internet and all this moment of initiative makes those things visible and, and almost real time, right? Which I, where I think like in the past, you would have had to look back from, you know, 10 or 20 years to sort of see how, to see that sort of shape of the, of the conversation, you know, and how like the emergence of like the Glenn Lowry's and Thomas Tretter, Tim Williams and Coleman Hughes, the dissident sort of dissident black thinkers was like, was like predictable, right? Like you could have just like actually looked at what was happening and said, well, surely this like, and so we can sit here right now and say, you know, I mean, it's already happening. We can say, yeah, people are going to start writers and intellectuals are going to start looking outside of, outside of the spaces that he's operating, just almost just out of like self, self-preservation or self-advancement or something like that. Like, how could you possibly carve out a niche for yourself as a writer by just kind of operating in those same molds? And people are gonna start looking for these other resources or centers of vitality, as you put it. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to watch. And, I, it's like, I, and like, I hope I can do it. Like I had to go back to, like, I think I think Hickey's still relevant. But it's much easier to see in retrospect. Like I had to go back to Hickey to find a, you know, a resource that I still think is vital. But I have not. I'm not sure I have this in me. Like I haven't seen around the corner. I don't know where to go for that energy. I probably won't be the one to do it. I have like too many kids and you know, and and too big a house or something like that to 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 be the one who finds that. But it'll be kind of. I think it'll happen. I'm sure it's happening. Yeah. Well. That's a inspiring place to to bring it to an end. So yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for the conversation. It's been yeah fun and uh, wide ranging. Yeah, it's great. And uh, really yeah, and uh, the book is far from respectable. Dave Hickey and his art just out. Um, check it out, read it, and also read uh, Dave Hickey's own work. And uh, I think you know it. It's uh, it contains a lot more that we could use to think about our strange present moment. So, yep. um, yeah, so thanks so much. And All right. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Uh, stay in touch. All right. You too. 